Welcome, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Industry 4.0 weekly live Q&A. Um, we, we're live here every uh, every week, Tuesday at noon central. So make sure to smash the subscribe button, ring the bell, and join us every week, every week live where we're answering your questions from the Industry 4.0 community Discord server. Um, I'm here with Vaughn. Vaughn, welcome. What's up? And uh, we are we are in members only mode today because we've got a lot of questions to get to, and I wanted to make sure that we got to them all. But uh, Cheryl, thank you. Welcome, welcome, Anders, and welcome, Mario. So let me go ahead and share my screen here. So um, we're gonna we're gonna do it a little bit differently. So normally, can I see that there? So normally, normally what we do is um, thumbs up if you guys can see that. Make sure to like this video. Uh, so normally what we do is we kind of have like this slide deck prepared. But this week what we decided to do was I wanted to go through like kind of channel by channel and go through the pinned messages because you know there was kind of like a frictional workflow to be able to screenshot, you know, put it into a Canva document, and then when we're going through the question, it's actually really useful to be able to like jump to that question and then be able to see the context. Um, so like right here in the, you know, obviously, um, but first I wanted to shout out, you know, all the new people to the mentorship program, welcome. We are closing the doors to our mentorship program tomorrow. And so we've got a, a lot of uh, last minute signups right now. So if you guys have not already signed up for the mentorship program, um, you can do that with the link in the description. Um, and then the next opportunity to join will be uh, in in winter so like january of next year um we are actually planning a conference so keep that in mind it's just in the planning phases right now but it's something that we have talked about and we're going to do that for you guys for the industry 4.0 community so thank you um <clears throat> I, real quick i did want to talk about um everyone that already did join and you guys are going through your step training you'll notice that step two is still still pending and we are working on that in July. So we've kind of set aside the entire month of July to build out our training program. And uh, when we did launch in September of last year, we knew we had to go with like a phase launch approach because to get step one, step two, step three, and to kind of build all that out just to launch it would have been too much work. It never would have gotten done. So our goal was when we launched in September to build out, you know, launch with step one, and then within six months, launch step two, and then within one year, launch step three. So, you know, we are a little bit late, but, uh, you know, that being said, we are going to continue to focus on delivering and hitting our goals with the one year mark um, coming up this year. And um, so, but quick, quick shout out, Tom Carmichael. Thank you. Troy Lenz. Thank you, uh, Mr. Noel. Uh, Tithi, sorry if I messed, messed up your name there, uh, Roger Greeley. Uh, Toby Russell, thank you. Welcome. Thank you guys for joining the mentorship program. Uh, you know, I might as well just go over the rules here. Uh, for everyone that's new to our community, if you guys have already joined, you guys have probably already seen this, but in my, uh, here's what Walker says about the, you know, the origin of the community server. In my opinion, this server is for real-time collaboration and sharing of ideas. We need to discourage active selling and active business development on the server or provide a channel just for that purpose. Um, so that way we can mute it if you choose, you can do that. Um, or else we'll drive away the community and be left with nothing but a bunch of business development uh, guys trying to sell to one another. Uh, our mission is to create a platform for real-time collaboration and sharing of ideas 
in Industry 4.0 and the IIoT community. Rule number one is the golden rule. Treat others as you, wanted to be, as you want to be treated. And rule number two, no unsolicited active selling or business development. And you guys have done a great job at that. Uh, we want our community to feel free to share ideas and issues without fear of being inundated with messages designed to sell them something. Uh, rule number three, contribute. Share your thoughts, your ideas, ask your questions, generate dialogue. Uh, rule number four, make friends and have fun. And um, yeah, thank you. So uh, in the announcements channel, you know, last week we did have our monthly mastermind session on the cloud layer. And that was a great success. Thank you, Michael Brown, for uh, coming in and helping us deliver that. And some of that training content is going to actually make its way into step two. Um, or so, keep keep your eyes keep keep your guys's eyes out for that. And then also next month, Michael Brown is going to come back again, and we're going to do a deeper dive on the IoT stack within AWS. So like last Friday was an intro to AWS. If you were already used AWS, some of it might have been a review, um, although Walker did learn a few new things. So, you know, AWS is always a growing platform. So, you know, this was kind of like the, the most recent up-to-date training on that. Um, there it is again in events. Uh, in our content feed, you know, we are we are still working on the uh, Opto 22 unboxing video. And then also uh, we got a couple of new products coming. The IO, the IO Link Starter Kit from Pepperell Pepper and Fuchs, right? Juan? That's correct. Yeah, so Pepperell and Fuchs sending us the IO Link Starter Kit, and then also Easy VPN sending us an IO Hub Starter Kit. So that's a newer technology. It's kind of built around Dockers and containers, and I'm interested to get my hands on that and take a look at it. So, um, I yeah, so keep, keep your guys out for more. Keep your guys' eyes peeled for more content. Make sure to subscribe for that. Uh, a couple new jobs actually were shared in the uh, Industry 4.0 jobs board this week. So uh, Lee Hunt has an opportunity for an entry-level process control resource to join his ITOT team uh, at Georgia Pacific, uh, specifically to learn the OT side. He shared a link right there. Um, so thank you, Lee, for sharing that. And then also David Schultz shared a link to uh, an opportunity at Matrix Technologies is one of the integrators that he's been working with. Um, <clears throat> Dave and Lee are also both members of the Mastermind program. This this channel, Industry 4.0 Jobs, is a restricted channel. So if you guys are not, you know, in one of the programs, you can still share a job link here. Just send it send it to me in a DM, and I'll go ahead and share it here. Um, you know, and, and welcome. If you guys are new to the Discord, be sure to introduce yourself here. We got a lot of great people in the Discord, and it's really cool to see uh, the global impact this community is having. All right, now moving on to uh, you know that's kind of the information and updates for you guys. Uh, moving on to the generals chat. Um, let me see if we have any questions here. Yeah, before we get started in that too, Zach, I want to kind of touch on something. So uh, you know we've been alternating between Zach and I leading the Q&A every week and then Walker leading. Uh, so if you're keeping up with it, this week would normally be Walker's week. But the reason that it's Zach and I again is because Walker has taken the month of July for sabbatical. He's taken, it, he's taken some time to work on a couple of uh, some things. Um, number one being step two, training. A um, couple, of, couple of things with content that we want to be focused on 
in the month of July. And then also, um, I think Walker said he's starting to work on his book. So that should, should be interesting as well. So, but yeah, I'll turn it back over to you, Zach. Yeah. And I asked Walker, I'm like, when can we start pre-selling the book? You know, I want to get, I want to get you guys a link to, to, you know, sign up and get the early access, you know, to pre-order it. But uh, he's like, we can't, we can't do a pre-sale until I have uh, what the thesis or what was it, Vaughn? Yeah. So it's like an abstract basically. Yeah. The abstract. So uh, Walker Reynolds is working on his book, obviously step two, and I'm going to be flying out to Dallas to finish out. We're also going to be doing a, a YouTube series. Um, and I'm moving, I'm actually moving to Utah later this week. That's why I'm kind of in a box right now. So <laughs> I'm still at this, uh, this WeWork, which has been good for this last month. So if you are, if you are looking for office, you know, office work and you're working on your IOT startup, I would recommend looking at a, a shared office space. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyways, let's, um, oh, Hey Jeff, <laughs> welcome to the stream. Jeff's in the, Jeff's in, Jeff, Jeff's in the waiting room. <laughs> All right, so um, let's see. Actually, let me see if I can just do this. I want to do split. Yeah, so if I had split screen, that would be much better. So there we go. Share my screen. We actually had a, a lot of great questions. Um, so let's see. Yeah, so can someone please explain the the digital twin concept and can we include OEE and PLM under the DT umbrella since OEE provides the operational parameters from the shop floor to the top floor? Uh, so I think that this was, um, Manjush, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I shared that um, LNTX has a great video on the digital twin concept. So I'll like leave a link to that here. Uh, but, you know, basically, I, th I think I, I think I touched on this last week, but we, we include OEE, um, you know, particularly like in an MES 4.0 pilot project, like we will include OEE as one of the main KPIs that we'll include on a line. Um, and because we're leveraging the unified namespace, it's built out in the ISA 95 structure. The OEE is actually you can you can actually have OEE, you know, by the cell, but, you know, by the line by the area and by the plant and by the enterprise. So we roll those parameters up. Um, it works perfectly with the digital twin concept. And yeah, that's why that's why we love that's why we love that architecture. Um, John Patanian asked if uh, it, is it a, a virtual model of a physical device? It could be a high fidelity physics based simulation model could be a simple regression model could be ML based. This description uh, below is as good as many in general, it is pretty broad term. So that's the, you know, that's kind of the, the crux of, you know, digital twin. What do you actually mean? What do you actually mean by that? Uh, so when we are talking about it, we, tap, we, we, we like to think of it from the data perspective, the digital twin of the, the current state and the, the real time events of the digital twin, right? Using, using that, you can, you can drive your visualizations like 3D or 2D or single pane of glass so without the, without the unified namespace, you can't actually have a digital twin at scale, right? You could have a proof of concept, an isolated digital twin, but what's the value in that, right? Um, you're you're going to capture small value, but you want to capture it at scale. Uh, so here's where I shared the LMTX video on digital twin, and 
it's actually funny because I didn't know, but LMTX works for Amazon, and I didn't notice that until he shared. I, I, I followed him on LinkedIn, and I noticed that, so that was cool. Um, I put the little AWS emoji. Can you guys see this here? Yeah, you guys can. Okay, no, this works better. Private chat. Hey, Jeff. Comments. This is cool. I want the book. Yeah, Mario. Uh, we're going to definitely sell um, signed copies, too. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and unpin that message here. So that's kind of, this is going to be the workflow going forward. If there's a question that I don't feel like I sufficiently answered or or the someone in the community didn't sufficiently answer in the Discord, then we'll leave that uh, for either us to shoot a standalone video on or when Walker comes on for the live Q&A for him to answer that. So um, Mario Pereira said, and question regarding IIoT, is there anyone here doing slope sloping boxcar and peak bake peak based reduction at the edge uh, before putting it in the historian data lake or db so i'm gonna i'll take a stab at it but i will leave it pinned because i specifically want to know what walker thinks on this but um or maybe even jeff from canary if he chimed in on this but i would say no because you you, you want the raw you want the raw events passing straight into your uh into your historian your data lake right you want the the raw transitions, the raw events, the raw values going into the unified namespace without any, you know, with as little as possible um, manipulation on the edge, right? You know, sometimes you're going to do, you're going to calculate OE on the edge and you're going to do some, um, you know, you're going to deploy your machine learning model to the edge and you're going to do some machine learning on the edge, but you're doing most of it in in the central, right? You're, you're connecting everything and everyone into the network um, and doing sloping box. So for those of you guys that know a sloping box car and peak base reduction, I think that's, it, I think that sounds similar to what inductive automation uses in their historian. Um, like a sloping box car, it, it kind of is like a, a moving fan window. It's sort of like a, a compression algorithm that takes a data, runs it through a, you know, an algorithm sloping box car or peak base reduction to reduce the number of data points um right right like if you have a, a data point that's just increasing linearly over time right at a flat consistent rate then a simple data point at the beginning and a simple data point at the end would be able to represent that line but in reality you want raw transitions like i'm saying right publishing from the and if you're publishing report by exception from the edge then the whole notion of you know these these raw transitions it makes even more sense, right? You're only sending data from the edge to the unified namespace when it changes. So, you know, I would, I would, I would recommend do, I would recommend against doing sloping boxcar and peak race reduction at the edge. But I would also be curious if anyone else here was doing it. Um, and then Mario gave some more context. So, um, but this is a little bit, a little bit too long to kind of go over here. So, Mario, if you do have any more uh, specific you know, concise que answer, uh, question for this, uh, please leave it in the, uh, in the edge discussion. There's an edge channel. So um, it does help when we kind of organize the, the thoughts and discussions into these other channels. I know the general is kind of like meant to be like a stream of consciousness, but um, sometimes <laughs> I think last night it kind of just went like a little bit too long and it was just kind of like this whole, well, let's see, like this whole kind of stream kind of went long, but um. Great question, Mario. And I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this one pinned here. 
So this is a this is a question pinned, but um, I want to a question I want to ask the community. If you guys can feel free to share in general, but Walker says what what you want today is a function of what you know today. Digital transformation is about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of an organization. It follows then that as you increase, as what you know increases exponentially, so will what you want. So digital transformation is about putting the mechanism in place to be able to adapt to those changes. All right, I'm gonna move on to the um, the digital transformation thread. Here's a good question. Stukes Netza said, hello all. Were there any discussions in the past about organization setups for large manufacturing companies undergoing a digital transformation? I have been working for a few companies in a global organization and the same trend is clear. The traditional IT organizations and procedures are not being changed and it's a constant battle between those two departments, both from a global and local perspective. Typical hot topics, who manages cap server? IT in one factory, OT in another. Want to change when IT manages it? The response is open a ticket. This is, for me, absolutely crazy, I agree. <laughs> then there are discussions on who should drive digital transformation in manufacturing, IT or OT? The answer is OT. Definitely someone who has experience, OT. If it's someone from the IT only layer, you'll probably fail. I still feel a, de a, a dedicated department should be established for which is driving the DT home and really bridging the gap between IT and OT and of the course of the business. Would be great to get some feedback on experience of what has worked and what has failed from this group. And hopefully Walker Reynolds has some input on his side. Thanks. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna leave this one pinned because I also would like to get some input from Walker Reynolds. But what I'll say is you're absolutely right. The IT and OT groups should ideally you know, in, a, in an industry 4.0 company that started from the ground up, there there wouldn't be separate groups, right? If you're an industry 3.0 company transitioning into an industry 4.0 company, then you're going to need a third group, a, a digital transformation, you know, uh, skunk works team to be able to build out your proof of concept, get feedback from your IT teams, get feedback from your OT teams, right? Assess your business inventory the intelligence inventory the inventory of your business yeah you can't it, you know we said all right you know someone needs to be from the ot team right but they still need to have like this they, they can't just be um uh on the ot team right they need to be on the dt team right or the iiot team you know um because otherwise typically you know like you said you run into those issues where IT in one factory, OT in another, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of confusion of overlapping responsibilities. IT thinks that they know everything. OT, you know, IT people think OT people are stupid. Uh, you know, could OT people, uh, what, what could uh, OT people say about IT people? I, uh, you know, I, OT people think IT people are stupid. <laughs> we just need to get along a little bit better, you know? Um, this is about education, right? This is what we're, this is why we're doing, um, enterprise we're doing enterprise training for some organizations because they've realized that you know everyone unless everyone has a clear understanding of what iot is what industry 4.0 is then you're going to keep fighting the same industry 3.0 battles mm -hmm. while you're 
you know, customer comes and eats your industry 4.0 lunch. <laughs> so, uh, Stukes, thank you for the question. I'd be curious to know, um, are you a system integrator or are you working for the end user? You know, and when you are working for the end user, you know, you are kind of the internal system integrator. So we don't, um, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't discriminate against either one, but you know, it's, it's helpful to know the battles that you're facing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ben, you know, Benito, Zach, yeah go ahead. Part of, part of the, um, the divide between the OT and the IT folks is that, you know, just not that it's not that they're a bunch of stupid people. They're not, they're very intelligent people, but, but it's a lack of, it's a lack of knowledge and education and cross functionality. You know, um, OT people don't understand what IT people have to go through every day. They don't, and 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 vice versa. IT people right. don't understand what OT people have to go through every day. To be to be but, fair, OT people might be afraid of the cloud when really the cloud is probably more secure than the server in in the in the factory. You know, correct. or down down the hall. Correct. Mohammed said, I have a question. Could you introduce a library prefer C++ to connect OPC UA server and OPC DA server to get data? Uh, yes, you could. Uh, but what I would probably use is Hibyte in this scenario. That definitely would use Hibyte. Um, and then, you know, look at implementing, you know, once you've kind of look, look to select a broker technology, look at like a EMQX or a HiveMQ for your broker. Those are very robust enterprise class brokers. Um, ultimately, yes, you are going to get data from a, uh, an OPC UA server, but you don't really want to have a custom library in C++, right? You kind of want to you kind of want to move away from that because ultimately, data ops is a thing, right? So you need to have a data ops a data ops solution for your modeling, you know, your connections and your flows. Uh, great question, though, Mohammed. Michael said you will need. You will need someone with horsepower to to lead the DT team. It's 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 a it's a not an easy job. No. <laughs> like, you should see some of the people that are in the DT directors of digital transformation that we're talking to. They are, they have a resume stack and a history stack that is like impressive, and they are still coming up to us to help overcome this challenge, right? So, you know, it's definitely, you know, you need to have the right partner, you need to have the right technology and the right strategy and, you know, authority and budget. Yeah. It's ba you basically need the C you need uh you need buy-in from the top down and then you need execution from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Which That's is why the which is why training is so important. Oh. All right, there we go. Um Ben Venema shared this so you know someone asked this question a while back but we'll go ahead and share it again here's what he kind of came up with as a, a blurb about digital factory um insert company acme like acme manufacturing has started a pilot program and initiative for digitally transforming the entire way we manufacture our widgets over the next few years every piece of equipment machinery and process will be plugged into our network enabling real-time information access and predictive analytics to your products as we produce them. This process will bring manufacturing information in real time to our operators and our maintenance staff on the plant floor, enabling them to make better decisions faster so your parts arrive on time and at the highest quality to our engineers and planners so they can design the best possible processes 
reducing lead times and predicting issues before they happen to our quality department, providing deeper insights for root cause analysis and IoT tracing as events occur to our to the environment by minimizing waste and running our equipment more efficiently and to our customers by allowing you to plan and predict your own manufacturing by providing up to the minute status reports and accurate delivery predictions in addition to higher quality. This is an exciting process for us and we look forward to sharing more as we progress. That's great, Ben. You know, if someone didn't know any better, they think they would probably think you were talking about industry 5.0 because, you know, <laughs> if you're talking about the industry 5.0 rant, some, some of this like bullshit articles that talk about industry 5.0, like the thing they'll talk about is like people, right? Or the environment. But if you actually look and understand what industry 4.0 is, Ben said it right there, it is better for the environment. It's better for our people, right? It, it's a democratization of technology. So, you know, if you, if you, if someone, if you come across an article or someone's telling you about industry 5.0, run, run. <laughs> they're trying to, they're trying to sell you something and, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. Unified namespace. Um, after this, we're going to go into historian because there was a great question that I had in historian that I still, we're still looking for an answer. So, but Mark Ritchie asked, having a question using a CMT SVR 102 as a broker. I have been able to bridge this with a mosquito broker, which was a simple four line entry to the config file. Uh, just getting started with ignition and have it set up with MQTT distributor engine and transmission. Could anyone point to a reference for bridging in an external broker like the CMT so that the ignition broker would pub sub to all the topics on this of the CMT or am I approaching this wrong? So I did answer this. Um, and this is where a reference architecture drawing would be a little bit helpful to help more helpful to make sense of all this. But um, I think what you're going to be wanting to do is having it the other way around. The CMT SVR is going to publish and subscribe to the MQTT distributor um, module in Ignition, right? So CMT SVR is like kind of your edge layer, and then it's publishing to your cloud or your enterprise broker, um, publishing and subscribing, so both multi-directional, but the connections being instantiated from the edge from the CMT SVR. Um, but there was a, uh, Maple has a really good tutorial. It's probably what he used to get that four simple line entry to, to the config file. But Maple does have a really good tutorial on Sparkplug B setup. Um, so yeah, great question, Mark. Jerry LBC asked, hello, anyone has experience with a plant service bus system based in IBM? integration bus and IBM MQ. This is a quite common system in EU automotive industry. If you know it, what are the key advantages and disadvantages comparing to UNS as we know it from Walker's presentations? Any feedback is appreciated. Thanks. Find more information here. Let's take a look at it. Hold on, let me uh, share my screen here. Industry, I always like it when it's industry, R-I-E. 
All right. So um, I think Walker is. I think Walker has said something about this before. No, this is the okay. We did share the art. Yeah, this is what someone said. Uh, are you kidding? Are you gonna subscribe? No, no, we're good. All right. So no, Walker. Someone said that uh, what we talk about is very similar to the IBM Industry 4.0 reference architecture, and uh, this is this is that. So. Um, Plant service bus, OT meets IT. You guys see that? All right, so outdated, redundant functions and data, higher cost, error prone, right? That's the automation stack with the point-to-point -point integration on the left. And then uh, on the right, we, they're advocating for reduced complexity, flexibility, standardization, linkage of isolated solutions, multi-cloud support, decoupling, a shock floor to cloud, freedom to switch. Um, Plant service bus, routing, transformation, mediation. So, okay. <laughs> All right. So I would be very careful that when you're using the plant service bus from IBM that you're not getting into a solution-centered approach um, because to me that sounds like, you know, what Hybyte is capable of doing. Data transformation, routing, right, your flows, mediation, right, your brokering. So, you know, just be careful. Um, I, I'm not saying that it's a solution-centered approach because I I wouldn't I wouldn't feel qualified to make that determination. But you know, on the back of my head, I kind of have that little um, sense saying, "Hey, you know, be careful here because you know that's 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 what Highbyte would do. You know, mm -hmm. Highbyte would be your unified namespace or plant service bus. You know, I'm not sure why they would have to call it a plant service bus, right? I, I to me, I haven't seen what's what is what makes this any different than other than just calling it something different a psb which by the way sounds horrible psb a uns i would take a uns 10 days out of 10 over a psb but i digress <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so no this is exactly yeah yeah because even right here where we always say you know unf unified nature does not have data it does not have a data store it you know, the data store is off of the unified namespace, which is what they're kind of showing here. Um, they're showing they're showing this bidirectional here. Oh yeah, and they're showing a bidirectional here too. Um, ERP, MII, and MES. I, I, I would want to know what, what this protocol is, right? They're showing MQTT as the gateway between the edge and the plant, but what is this? This, you know, again, this might be a kind of a solution driven where they might steer you I'm not saying again. I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but if this were like, a, let's say, a PTC ThingWorks service plant service bus, you know, this over here would be like their Rockwell ERP, right? Their Rockwell partner MES, or you know, so something to keep in mind. Existing up and running projects in the automotive industry. Yeah, what is so? If if you're at the person asking the question, Jerry, what is the plant service bus based on what you know? What is the plant service bus doing? Yeah, I guess you're asking the question, but to anyone out there, what are the key advantages or disadvantages of the plant service bus when compared to the UNS? Um, uh, you know, let's see. Docker, I like that. Nice. Kubernetes. Microservices. 
So this is a uh, interesting slide. Maintaining at zoo cost. That's all. That's funny. IBM SpliceX. Yep. Here's their, the solution. So smart factory. Digital twin. Uh, this is interesting. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. I mean, it's basically this is basically in finding space. Like if you look at this slide and, and what they're trying to show that what it's doing here, you could just replace PSB right here with unified namespace. And yeah, I don't see why, especially if you're talking MQTT up to your cloud layer and down to your, this layer on TCP IP. Um, and then, you know, if you had a, if you, this was, if your, if your UNS was wrapped in a broker, if your UNS was managed with a, a data ops solution, like Hibite, then you could bring it or, you know, even like Kepware can, can publish into a unified namespace, pulling data from OPC UA using their IoT gateway, um, Ignition or Factory, Factory Studio. Actually, um, th there was an update on the F Factory Studio that uh, their broker, oh, sorry, can you see this? Their broker their broker technology is coming out in 9.12 or nine, no, 9.2, 9.2. What was the name of that Chinese broker that Walker mentioned? Um, great question, John. EMQ. Thank you, Michael. EMQX. Yeah, Michael says that they're forwarding from EMQ or HiveMQ. Yeah. No, I, um, if someone from IBM, you know, is in the community, you know, identify yourself and, you know, come on the podcast. We'd love to talk more about the plant service bus and how uh, its similarities to the unified namespace. You know, sh show us that if you use the plant service bus, you're not vendor locked into using IBM SpliceX, for example, right? Um, you know, we often say Hibite is a great solution for managing your unified namespace, but you're not you're not vendor locked into using Hibite only, right? You can use frameworks to build your unified namespace and manage your data models, or you could use Ignition. You could also use WinCCOA if you needed the horsepower, and you know. Probably if you're in, in Europe, you're probably using WinCCOA. Um, I know CERN, one of the largest WinCCOA implementations. The last I heard, this was when I went through the WinCCOA training um, six or seven years ago, was that they had like 1,600 servers clustered in a clustered in a, in a, in a network. So 1,600 WinCCOA servers to manage everything from their building maintenance to all the different labs and tests equipment that they're doing on that the large hadron collider right this is where they're discovering what is antimatter what are, what were the conditions like at the beginning of the uh, of the universe and um it's powered by WinCCUA, right they've got the unified namespace and everything so All right, let me share my um, Discord here. Do you have any questions, Vaughn? No. I'm actually I'm actually researching the uh, <laughs> the client service bus. Yeah. <laughs> I want to bring Jeff, Jeff. If you want to come on, just let it uh, just let us know. Discord. 
unified namespace. Great question, Jerry. I definitely want to continue to continue that dialogue there. Uh, then John Patian asked, I'm bringing in data from an MES system into a UNS structure. My connection will be through a data set tag in ignition. Any strategies for doing incremental only data since last query queries to pull the data in from the tables into ignition? So um, this is a this is an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know if there's any SQL tricks, um, but what I would do is. Um, you know, you can you can you can push it when it changes, right? So when the data changes, you can push it into a data set. Um, you can push that into a data set tag to avoid that query. Um, but if you're using named queries, Ignition does a lot of optimization so that you know it's only running that query once, and you can set parameters such that you know even if you have like ten clients out there all all querying that one data set tag, you know Ignition is smart enough to only run the query once. Um, so I would, I would want to know, I would want to know more why, what's, what's making you ask the question? Are you running to, into issues or are you just curious? Um, you know, maybe you've had a problem before where you're running too many queries to pull data in. Um, but it is a good question, right? You know, if you are running too many data set tags, you do want to make sure that you're not running needless queries. But I would say, um, if, or here's, here's the strategy. Instead of running a lot of uh, data set queries on the tag level, which will be a new query for every instance, run it at the server level in a Python script and then parse the results of the Python script data set and then publish and then write those individual smaller data sets to your data set tags. So, you know, I hope that made sense, right? Did Vaughn, did that make sense? <laughs> I mean, kind of. <laughs> yeah, so instead of having one query for each tag, let's say you have 10, you have 10 lines and each line has a, a data set tag that is like the current work order. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's 10 work orders. So that's 10 individual queries to your database. Right now, it's only going to, it's only going to change when the work order changes. So right there, the query is only going to run when the work order changes. So, um, but if it's changing a lot, yeah, you would have 10 different queries running. But what I was saying you could do is run one query for the plant, right? Run it at the plant layer. And in that query, you get 10 rows back. And in Python, you go through row by row, build out those 10 individual data sets, and then write, write it as a tag, right? Which is much mm -hmm. faster. So you're only doing one database query and then just pushing the data to where it needs to go, formatting it into a data structure. So then it, you can be used for your visualization. So that would, yeah, here I am thinking like I didn't have an answer for it, but I was like, oh, no, that actually, that, that's what I would do is, um, and I think they do do that, you know, at when you're managing your objects from the server layer, when and this is like when your new, new objects are being published into the unified namespace and they're showing up, Sometimes you're having um, a, a gateway level script that's looking for these new objects and, and kind of doing certain things. Um, not always, but uh, you know, it's like sometimes, let's say you have uh, data that's being published in from the edge in a raw format. And for each time you have a new instance of that, you want to create a, a structured data type that references the raw data. So um, sometimes you're doing that when whenever a new object is being 
published into your namespace, you have a query, you have a script that runs like every minute that checks to see if, are there any new objects, and if there are, it does certain things. It creates new UDTs that references those raw data points, and then you know then your templates are visualizing the data from the UDTs from the reference layer. Mm -hmm. Is S four HANA a unified namespace? We answered this before, but the answer mm -hmm. is no. Uh, S5, though, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Spark will be on their, on their roadmap for S5 HANA. I'm just kidding. S5 HANA is not a product. Don't listen to me. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's it for Unified Namespace. Uh, no, why can we not use OSI Soft as a broker? We answered that one, so I'm going to delete that one. Yep, here's the Industry 4.0 reference architecture. All right, I, let's, see, let's see if we have any questions here. Gonzo asked a question about OPC UA. All right. Um, I have a question about OPC UA. I tried first in general, but got no answer. Sorry about that. Sometimes uh, general gets a little bit crazy, so thanks for bringing it up here. So maybe that's the wrong channel for such things. Yeah. Uh, maybe someone can help here. So here's a question. I'm having a little trouble with an OPC UA detail. Oh, surprise. It is my understanding that the certificate private key pair used for the A secure channel and one for the B client authentication may be different. But I'm working on, I'm, but I'm wondering if having two different pairs makes any sense in the real world. My scenario is some kind of bridge to OPC UA that can be easily configured by the user, uh, which is not that easy, much given the clusterfuck OPC UA is, agreed. Nothing, yeah, easy and OPC UA don't, aren't, aren't always in the same sentence. And if possible, I'd reuse the client key. So it makes sense why you're wanting to do this, to make it easier. And if possible, I'd reuse the client cert and private key for both purposes in order to annoy the user a little less. Does that make sense? Or there are situations where you'd want the two different pairs. So I'm glad that Matt Paris stepped in because when you're getting into the security keys, I mean, it makes, in theory, it makes sense what you're saying. You're switching out one of the private keys, but in practice, you know, it's going a little bit above my head, but you know, I would, I would, I would ask, you know, why, why do you want to even do this? You know, um, you know, are you just doing this? Yeah. Well, I know OPC, you're right. OPC way is not, be, it's not getting, you're not getting rid of OPC way. Right. But it's, you're trying to make it less of a, a hassle to deal with and you're trying to make it more interoperable with your iot ecosystem uh what matt paris did say though is i've never utilized certificates as an authority authorization mechanism only have used anonymous or user password i've used certificates for the transport sign and encrypt i don't know if any of those i don't know of any of reasons why the certificates can't be the same for both use cases thanks i guess i'll stick to only one certificate yeah. Um, yeah. Again, Gonzo, sorry your uh, question got lost in general, but um, thanks for sharing it. And Matt, thank you for answering. Um, it, and if you want to share more, Gonzo, about the use case, you know, feel free to share an IIoT. Question of the day: How did you get started with IIoT? What piqued your interest, and what about it appeals to you? 
All right, I'm gonna jump over to historian because I, I need to answer this question. So Breta asked, has anyone migrated from an on-prem Canary solution to Canary Cloud? What were the challenges, if any, working in a GXP environment? So um, let's see. So Jeff responded, uh, morning Breta, as far as the technology stack, it is identical. It is just a matter of installing Canary in the cloud environment of your choosing, building the data sets and transferring the HDB files, and then redirecting your log sessions to the new receiver location. The technical challenges remaining are typically around security and user management. By the way, if you are when you reference Canary Cloud, you are thinking more of our own hosted and managed solution. You eliminate the need to create your own environment and work through the install. Yeah, that's actually interesting. You know, to be honest, I had not, I had not heard of the um, Canary Cloud. Like I know, I know, unless you're talking about um, running Canary in in a private installation and on a you know, in a cloud server. I didn't know they had a. Do they have a Canary Cloud hosted solution? Oh, use Canary Cloud. Yeah, they do. Hold on. <laughs> oh, that's their yeah, it's their it's their SaaS model. Yeah, I knew this. All right, hold on. S five. I'll tell the why. S five. All right, um, Brandon, he, his uh, he, he his wife works for SAP, so she watches our videos. So shout out uh, Brandon's wife, um, Michael Dowdell. I just asked online Canary website how to migrate using Canary and check the check out the Q and A. They answer pretty quick. So hold on, let me share this here. Thanks for thanks for sharing that, Michael. All right, uh, window Chrome tab Canary. The data historian with the best value, Canary pricing. So yeah, when so when you go to this page, canarylabs.com slash pricing, it defaults to your own server, which you know has a one-time purchase price or a subscription, but they also have Canary Cloud. Oh yeah, no. So they have SaaS modeling for your own server, but they also have it for hosted solution. Yeah, no, I honestly I did not hear them talk about that all that much. To be honest, I, if anyone's using Canary Cloud for a, a proof of concept, or if you're using it, one, you know, is it cost effective for your implementation? Um, you know, I guess it's easier to get started. And then two, um, you know, how are you how are you using it for your application? Right? Are you using it at the enterprise layer, or using it right at the plant layer? Where where in the ecosystem are you plugging? Um, where are you plugging it in at? So unlimited, so an enterprise, your own Canary server enterprise unlimited is 64,000, which I which actually I think is lower than what it used to be. So it looks like the prices is also coming down, which is a good thing. Then you can get a formal quote. Mike Tuff said, Canary software is very easy to use and very intuitive. We use it throughout the company from op operations to administration. 
the control and SCADA supervisor of city of Bo Boca Raton. Yeah, no, um, I, I would, um, but uh, I'll, I'll follow up more to, I, I want to know more about, you know, how you're, how you're planning on using it in your architecture, because uh, it sounds like, um, it sounds like there's a little bit more that we can kind of unpack there. So let me stop sharing that. Are there any performance limitations? That's a great question, JS. He asked about, yeah, that was one of the things that came up is like latency, right? Or if you're running it on AWS local zones, right, then the latency is pretty low, almost like it's on-premise. But if you're in, um, you know, if you're in Europe and Canary Cloud is hosted in East Coast, well, then it's probably not, not too bad. But, right, if you're in Asia and it's hosted in US East Coast, then the performance of Canary Cloud might it might vary, right? But um, again, I, I don't know. I don't know that much about it because they haven't. I haven't heard about it too much. Um, but because if Canary is like an OT solution, the OT side has been slower to adopt cloud, so it makes sense that it's more often you're seeing. Um, this is why SCADA software was always like was still sold as standalone licensing, you know, to this day. You know, whereas on the IT side, everything is. SaaS user subscription. Are there any performance limitations, Jeff? Um, Jeff, we got to bring you on and talk about Canary Canary Cloud or something if we get you know if we have time. Bring you on the community spotlight again. Um, let's move on to um, the next one. Business use cases. Are there any? No, no pin messages, guys. Share your business use cases uh, in the business use case and share your reference architecture in the reference architecture uh, section. Vision, blockchain. I think we got something wireless, yep. This is an older one. Oh, someone, someone just shared an interesting thing um, that uh, Siemens just recently released their industrial 5G router. So um, that would actually be That'd be cool to get our hands on too. Uh, I, real quick side note: Stephen G shared this: how to design Wi-Fi for a seven hundred twenty thousand square foot warehouse. This is actually a really good video from Wi-Fi Ninjas. Talked about like the, you know, the challenges of designing Wi-Fi full coverage because they're using um, smart devices on their forklifts, so their forklifts needed to be able to drive down like, like. Uh, like a 100 meter, 200 meter, like long hallways of uh, like 40 foot high uh, shelving racks, you know, and it was only like a two meters wide, you know, it's like a meter wide or something, right? It's just barely long enough to, to get the forklift down. And so they needed to design a Wi-Fi system. And I was like, oh, but it was, you know, using traditional antennas uh, where it's like kind of server client. Whereas I'm like, oh, that would have been a perfect installation for 5G because it would have been more mesh repeater based. So you could have had, um, you know, one mesh repeater, like at at every twenty feet um, on your storage you know, on your shelving racks for your storage. Uh, but it's funny I said that, and then he said, "Spooky, we've been discussing that this week. What a five G implementation would look like in this environment." So, 
we are seeing more 5G in industry, and you know Siemens released their 5G industrial router. Um, we, you know, we'll probably probably do a video on what is 5G. Like if we, you know, do a whiteboard video uh, on what is 5G, that would be awesome. Um, Mike B said, for a land-based deployment, a CBRS 4G 5G implementation could be done in one of two ways. You can do a cloud-based core with application on-prem and uh, gateways and base stations, or you could have an on-prem core with application gateways and base stations. Either way, the data does not leave the site. If you have a cloud-based core, the infrastructure and user device control would be sent to the cloud along with SAS data. If you have an on-prem core, then the SAS data would leave the site. That's a little bit over my head, but it, it kind of makes sense. Mike, thanks for sharing that. Um, if you want, what is SAS data? That's a good, what is SAS data? Context. Do we have anything in security? VR. Let's see if we have any more questions here. If guys, if you have any questions, again, um, next week we'll we'll go back to um, not members only. So you guys will be able to chat in the YouTube chat. Thank you guys for joining. You know the members of our YouTube channel. Thank you for joining and supporting. Uh, we just wanted to make sure we got through all these questions today. And um, Vaughn said it would be nice for our teams to meet again and discuss moving forward. Yes. Jeff, thank you for thank you for joining. Um, and community spotlight. So if you guys are interested in coming on the community spotlight, uh, I was actually on on the clubhouse with uh, some of the gang before, like Tai Chi and JS and Matt. And I was like, JS, you've never been on the community spotlight. You know, you're like this my mysterious figure. <laughs> and I guess Walker is pronouncing his his name wrong this whole time. It's like Jeffrey Schroeder. But he just calls him Jeffrey Schrader or something. But it's like Schroeder. Like it, it, he's actually German descent. And uh, yeah, so JS. Um, maybe one day we'll be cool enough for you to come on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could be. That would be awesome. So yeah. Um, Let me add this back. Let's go through the last few channels together and see if there's anything else. User experience. Oh, this is the old one. Oh, this is a good. This is actually a good one. Ayak asked, "Hello, Walker Reynolds. I have a question. How do you manage MQTT subscription when with rendering components in React?" Mario said. I came, I came here to ask the same exact question. Actually, on yesterday's video, Walker Reynolds said you could that you could use your clients never access the that your clients never access the database, and I think also a REST API then is not accessed. So in React clients, do you need to create individual MQTT subscriptions to the UNS? How do you handle authorization? I think in this case is is needed at least the API backend to control authorization. To avoid exposing auth code on the front end, that's actually a really good question. I and then uh, Walker said, as a general rule of thumb, clients don't hit the DB. Correct? Yes. What we do is query to the UNS and then visualize from the UNS to the client. 
query, yep, query to the UNS from the database and then visualize from the UNS to the client. When you say React, do you mean native or are you talking about using perspective and ignition? Are you running a native React app or is it within a platform? Um, yeah, so we're talking about a native Re a React app. Um, sometimes when you mentioned you hired web developers but for it, but maybe you're using it more for reports and not real time. So here's here's where Walker asked to sketch the architecture. Oh, this is actually gold. So Mario shared this here. Can you see that? So you have a React web app, historical and real-time data that hits a REST API, and the REST API hits the historian, right? And the historian um, data is flowing into it from the unified namespace. So he's saying, how do you handle this authorization for real-time data to go from the UNS to the React web app client, right? Obviously, you can't just put the authorization keys on the client side here to, to be able to authorize that. It's actually a um, really good point. Um, Matt said, I'm going through the same considerations. HiveMQ offers a demo application that is an MQTT client in the web browser. So you can go download it there and see how they're doing it. If you go to this web page, it will load an application within your web browser, which is an MQTT client. You can point it to your broker to a port exposing MQTT over WebSockets. Most brokers support this. So you're connecting directly to the UNS in this way. Seeing this work blew my mind. I'm gonna pin this. I'm gonna pin this for anyone who wants to go on the user experience channel and, and look at that that demo um, that blew Matt's mind. Even even as cool as this is, I don't think it is the best method though, right? Especially as if you have multiple clients, and as, especially if they are all trying to publish and subscribe to the Sparkplug B namespace. I am finding that every client that subscribes to the Sparkplug B namespace then needs to request a birth of the other devices so that they can get the latest value of all the available metrics, similar to what Ignition does if it connects midstream and then ha and hasn't seen a birth certificate yet. As people load pages and then close them, et cetera, it becomes too much burden on devices to republish birth certificates. Well, I'm actually getting into the weeds here. Thinking the better route is having a single, always on client to the UNS that will stay connected and host the web application then use something like Signal R to transfer the data from the web server to the React pages of the various users. It should be a snappier experience for the user too, since the web application is the browser uh, and, and isn't having to parse the entire Sparkplug namespace, I agree. That was one of the things Matt complains about is when you subscribe to a Sparkplug topic, you're getting the whole, uh, you're, you're kind of having to subscribe to that whole topic, right? It's still sending data report by exception from the edge, but when you're a client listening to that package and like one piece of data changes in that package, you kind of still need to go through the whole payload kind of, it's, it's, yeah, it's still report by exception, but it's like a little bit clunky on the client. It's a little bit more clunkier on this client side, right? Was what he's saying here is um, it should be a snappier experience since the web application in the browser isn't having to parse the entire Spark Pug 
be namespace. It is only interest if it is only interested in a single device. This may help your authorization issue as well, where you can control a fixed authorization to the UNS, but have methods to authorize users by connecting to the web interface. This is one of the things that Walker said that is a, is a need in the marketplace is a like a, a, a robust web app, a robust web app that connects to the unified namespace and visualizes data in an easy kind of drag and drop way that you can build dashboards kind of like Node Red, but specifically a web app built around the unified namespace and kind of have it free and then license it by user for like enterprise features. But if, if, if someone did that and, and overcame this this challenge of, you know, managing the client side connections, then that would be, we, we would we would talk about that product on our channel a lot. So, but um, anyways, guys, if you have any more questions, leave them in the discord. I'll leave a link to that to join down below. Um, last question, Brennan said, Walker used to refer to UNS as a singular Oh, we get this question all the time. All right, I think um, a UNS or the UNS. Recently, I've noticed Walker Reynolds talking plurals, a UNS here and a UNS there. If it's supposed to be a single source of truth, how can it be there? How can there be more than one? Okay. So um, the unified namespace, is, it's, omni, it's omnipresent and it's omniscient, right? It's everywhere and it knows everything. So you can have a unified namespace that's sort of like a a tree a tree architecture where it branches into another node and then it branches again so if you look at it from the from the from the bottom up it almost looks like capillaries right like you kind of have a line a line that publishes into a line level broker right so that's a unified namespace for that line level broker and then that line level broker publishes into the plant level broker. So that, that plant level unified namespace is a unified namespace that contains all the information for that plant. And then that plant level unified namespace publishes into the enterprise level unified namespace, which has everything, right? Federated. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's also, because you can also subscribe, you could in theory have the all of everything at every layer, but you know, at a certain point, that's a lot of like to have the entire enterprise namespace on one small device that's at the end of one small line doesn't doesn't there's no value in that. But, you know, you could do that if you wanted to. But typically what you're doing is kind of federating it up. So you're building the unified namespace from the ground up to the enterprise. But then you're also bringing portions of the enterprise back down to the to the plant, especially like your MES data. You're wanting to roll you're wanting to roll that back down. So then one line can know how is it doing compared to the rest of the lines in the entire fleet, right? If you're not rolling it back down at cloud to edge, you're not, you're not having that context. So unified and namespace enables that architecture. So great question, Brendan. All right, guys, thanks. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I'll see you guys next week. Bye. See ya. <laughs>